When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Talking Cars is brought to you by our friends at Onyx Off-Road. With more than 985 million acres of public land and over 400,000 miles of roads and trails, including open dates and width restrictions, Onyx Off-Road is a must-have app for any motorized enthusiast. Explore with confidence using the most trusted and accurate GPS satellite topo trail mapping app. Turn your phone into the best off-road mapping tool for finding open dirt roads and trails, tracking your favorite routes, and adding custom waypoints along the way. Onyx Off-Road uses your phone's GPS when you're off-grid and offline. Access full detailed satellite imagery, open trails, and remote campsites, all while out of cell service. Download the app from the App Store, Google Play, or go to onyxmaps.com slash offroad-app for a seven-day free trial. Now, let's get to the podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another great episode of the TFL Talking Cars podcast. And today we have a very special guest, one of the few people who's actually driven the brand new Defender behind me is, of course, Scott Brady. Hi, Scott. How's it going, Roman? Good to see you, man. And Scott is the publisher of the Overland Journal and, of course, um, I guess the publisher of the uh, uh, Expedition Portal as well. So um, Scott got, got to go to Namibia to drive the new Defender, oh. and I am jealous. How about you, Tommy? Oh, that's an unbelievable experience. It's, on today's podcast, we're going to dive into the Defender, I'll talk about what it's like because... Um, this is one of the, the few, few gentlemen in the whole world that's really had a lot of seat time in it and has driven it extensively off-road. Sit back and relax or keep driving if you're driving. TFL Talking Cars is on the air, the world's most popular car podcast. Okay, maybe not yet, but we're working on it. Yeah, and you got to do it in Namibia, dude, not like, uh, you know, to the local mall. So, uh, <laughs> first of all, let's talk about you. I mean, you know, you have driven around the world a few times now. Um, so. Tell me about kind of, you know, how you got to publishing the Overland Journal and just kind of a few of your crazy adventures that you've done over the last, what, 10 years or so now. Well, it's interesting. It all started for me when I joined the military. I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in a city and, and my dad was definitely an outdoors person. But when you live in a big city, you only get to experience the outdoors so much. But when I went into the military, I was stationed in Idaho, which is this beautiful um, area out, a lot of wilderness there. And then I got stationed in Italy for, you know, during the whole Bosnian conflict that you're familiar with. And uh, for me, that was when it first opened my eyes to travel. I realized, holy hell, the world is an amazing place. 
and I need to go see as much of it as I can. And, and that's what really sparked the passion for it. But it probably took me another 12 to 15 years before I could make it my full-time uh, vocation. So I was involved in manufacturing and I was involved in software consulting. And it was the software consulting that gave me the springboard to start Expedition Portal and then ultimately start the print magazine Overland Journal. Yeah. Um, talk to me about kind of some of the crazy adventures that you guys have done. I, I, when I said you've driven around the world a couple of times, I meant it. I mean, it wasn't just a figure of speech, right? You've driven, oh gosh, all kinds of vehicles in all kinds of places. So I'm just trying to establish that, that, that you know your stuff when it comes to talking about the Defender. You know, um, we, we've been lucky. I, I have driven around the world three times. I've circumnavigated the planet three times um, and I've crossed all seven continents. Uh, the majority of that travel has been done in Toyota Land Cruisers. Um, a lot of that was with a project that I did with a friend of mine, Greg Miller, called Expedition 7. Uh, and that was when we took the same vehicle to all seven continents. And we did a full continental crossing of Antarctica uh, in the Toyota Hilux. And, but I've driven uh, classic Defenders across continents and motorcycles and Jeeps and, and G-Wagons. And uh, personally, I've owned a lot of different vehicles. I own Land Rovers and G-Wagons and Toyotas today. So I, I'm really uh, brand agnostic. Um, and I just appreciate any manufacturer that is intentional about making a proper four-wheel drive. So Tommy, tell them uh, about what the media drive was and what we didn't get to go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Namibia for me is one of the places in the world that I love most. And when Land Rover contacted me and they said that we were going to drive Van Zell's Pass, I, I got that little flutter in my heart because it was actually one of the routes that I wanted to do during Expedition 7. So if you think about it, we were doing a, a major uh, continental crossing expedition and the route that Land Rover chose to launch the Defender was the same route that I had considered years before. So to me, that was very reassuring that Land Rover wanted to do a proper journey, a multi-day, very remote, a very challenging track. So. From, from my perspective, that was the first plus in the column of the Defender. So, yeah, yeah what happened? Awesome. Go ahead, Tommy. And, and Scott, you know, um, the new Defender has been very controversial in a lot of ways from, you know, the basic instruction to the design to the, uh, the power plants even. Um, what were your expectations going into driving the vehicle? Did you have any kind of notions when, when you uh, got that invite uh, of what the car would be like? Well, it's difficult for me. I, I worked pretty hard to limit my own personal bias because the concern is always that the anytime that you have a new vehicle, you want to you want to consider the old vehicle. You want to think about the old vehicle and how it may influence the new one. And, and I personally have a, a classic Defender diesel, so a diesel 110. Yeah, they. I think they had uh, a reveal in the UK. Uh, were you there for that? Did you go to the reveal in the UK? I, I was there. Yeah, I, I, we were under pretty heavy embargo and NDAs on that, but I was there for the initial review. And interestingly enough, we also had staff that were able to drive the SFC 100, I think it was called. I don't re yeah. remember the exact um, moniker for the for the Defender prototype many years ago. But I was, we were actually there for that as well. So, 
And you guys talk a lot about um, the original Defender and how that impacts the new car. And I, I agree that it is a very contentious vehicle. You, anytime you try to take something that has looked essentially the same for 60 years and then change it so radically, the response is going to be equally radical in my mind. And, and I think that that's something that was a very significant and it will be a significant challenge for Land Rover with the new vehicle. If you look at the, at the Wrangler, it's been this incremental slow change. I remember, I remember when the first Wrangler came out, that, was, that got a lot of the same kind of reaction uh, with the YJ. And then by the TJ with the coil springs, the, the, the yelling was a little softer. And then of course the JK is the best, was the best Jeep ever made. Um, and I think that the, some of the contentiousness around the vehicle is justified. It's just the reality of, of the fact that you've gone from solid axle and coil springs and diesel motors to, to something that's extremely modern. Yeah, so before we get into kind of, you know, what you, what you feel about it and if you like it, I'll, I'll give you my take on Land Rover, right? So, so to me, you know, there's always one car that has the DNA of the brand, right? And if you name a brand, you can probably name that car. So, you know, you said Jeep, the Wrangler has a DNA. And for me, the Defender has always been the vehicle that had the DNA of the uh, Land Rover brand. And unfortunately, uh, I kind of feel like Land Rover took kind of a hard left into what I call urban chic, right? Uh, you know, they started building cars uh, more for Hollywood Boulevard, uh, than for Moab. Uh, and they still kept all the off-road goodness, but the design language was very urban chic. Um, the tires were very kind of street rated. And while it had you know, a lot of the tech, uh, it didn't have kind of that um, off-road square jaw look. Um, and, and with every successive new car that Land Rover introduced, they got further and further away from kind of their off-road routes. So when, you know, I, got, I saw that there was a new Defender coming, I was super excited because I was like, finally, these guys are getting the fact that, you know, this is what their DNA is, this is what their core competence is. Um, and the question that I have for you, Scott, is did they do it? I mean, is it a good off-roader? Let's start with that. Well, if we are willing to put the design language aside for a second, when you compare it to modern vehicles, it's an excellent off-road vehicle. Um, you know, the, the ride quality is the best ride quality I've ever experienced in a high clearance off-road vehicle. And that's because of the new technology that, that they have for the airbag. So these are multi-stage, multi-bellow airbags. So when you lift it up, you, you know, you've driven like a Grand Cherokee with an air suspension. When you put it in the high mode, it's almost undrivable. You can use it for short periods of time right. yeah. to get over an obstacle or something. Yeah, but uh, because the pressure is so high in the bag, it makes the ride quality terrible. What they did with the de new Defender is there's a second bellows in there that just adds the height, but then the, then the additional bellow is at the lower pressure. So because of that, you don't get such a hard ride quality. So you can be very much lifted at over 11 inches of ground clearance and still have really good ride quality. So when you think about higher speed or moderate speed travel on dirt roads, it's excellent. If you were to compare it to a Wrangler, it does fall short of the capability of the Wrangler for a couple reasons. Uh, you don't have consistency in ground clearance because it's independent suspension. You don't have anywhere near as much articulation 
as the Rubicon, for example, because you can uncouple the front sway bar. And then you also lack a front locker. So the, the rank, and then there's just some body dimension characteristics that a Wrangler has that's really superior. Now, if you were to compare it like against a TRD Pro Forerunner, that's when I think you get a better comparison. They're, they're very similar in capability. Hmm. Well, that's a good uh, bar because that's a very capable vehicle. Um, yeah. So let's, let's, let's bring the design language back. Do you like the looks of it? I mean, I, when I first saw it, I thought, like, I loved the back end of it. I loved how they took the classic cues of those taillights and incorporated them into the new vehicle in a very modern and fresh way. Uh, and over time, it's grown on me. At first, I thought it was just a little too, um, a little too soft. But as, as I've seen it more and more, and as I saw it in person at the Los Angeles Auto Show, it, it really did grow on me, especially the short wheelbase, right? Not the longer four-door, but the two-door. Well, I think that as the vehicle gets out in the field more and that there's, there's a, another story that comes along with it where you see the images of it fording deep water and, and going through mud and, and you know, with elephants in the background that starts to trigger those other memories and, and those, that consideration towards the older vehicles, which I think was smart on the part of Land Rover. But if I'm just gonna purely look at it from a design perspective, which design is very important to me personally and to, to my brands, I would say that it was a pretty significant miss on the front end. Um, and there's a couple reasons in my mind for that. The, just from a practical perspective, the front end doesn't lend itself well towards aftermarket modification. Um, the way that the front fenders integrate with the front grill, um, that's gonna be very difficult for the aftermarket to respond with. And I think that that is um, an unfortunate situation because if you look at a Wrangler, it's all about how do you impart your own personal um, spirit onto the vehicle and your own personal personality onto the vehicle. The more that Defender allows for that to happen, I think the better for the brand. Uh, and that's certainly true of the original Defender. So the front end also, if you look at the headlights, it's got the way that it strikes a line through the middle of the headlight, it gives it that kind of, um, it looks a little sad, right? It, it, or it looks a little angry. Yeah, it's got the angry Wrangler eyes, right? Right, and I, I think that if they had, even as simply as created a fully round headlight, like you see with the new G-Class, that would have made a huge difference in the front end appearance of the vehicle. So I think that it, it all is surrounded um, with that headlight uh, bezel and the way that it's cut and rounded in the corner there is where I think that a lot of the design language fell short and that's what people are reacting to. That's where it started to depart too greatly from the original vehicle. Keep yeah, the I mean, headlights round. So. I mean, you look at, um all traditional off-roaders, right? So the Wrangler started it out, round headlights, you know, set, didn't have seven slots, but grill, you know, at the time. And then, you know, the Scout came along, same thing, round headlights, grill. Uh, and then the Bronco came along, took that same design language. You mentioned the G-Wagon. It really is kind of that off-road language. And, and yep. putting that kind of squinty-eyed or angry look onto it did certainly, um, in my mind, take away from that. What do you think, Tommy? Do you like the look of a thing from the front? Um, I'm totally on board with, with exactly what Scott was saying. You know, in terms of customizability, it really looks like a challenge. 
um, just because none of it looks very modular. And, and maybe that's kind of what they were going for with the entire unibody design of the vehicle. Um, but Scott, a question for you. When you were on the Namibia trip, I was looking at some of the pictures and it looked like they were a little bit modified. Can you talk about that? I mean, did they change the tires, the unibody protection? Like, did they add winches when you were on your trip? Everything that was on the vehicle is a factory available accessory, um, which I thought was very cool. Um, the, the tires are also an option. These are Goodyear uh, Duratrac, Wrangler Duratracs. And those are actually a, a quite a good tire and they're a nice hybrid between an all-terrain and a mud terrain. And we needed them in the mud that we experienced in the Horacib River. And the tires from the factory are quite large. They're over a 32 inch diameter. And the vehicle in my mind will easily accept a 33. And I think with a little bit of modification will likely fit a 35 wow, so, really? or a 34. So once, consumers get their hands on these vehicles, uh, we're going to start to see them look very cool because they're going to they're going to lift them a little bit and they're going to put bigger tires on it. Uh, when I was talking with one of the engineers who I won't name because I, I, I don't know if they would want this shared publicly, but I think it's worth sharing publicly, is that they actually tested the Defender with 35-inch tires on it extensively. So wow. Land Rover it themselves recognized that the consumer was going to put 35s on this car and they wanted to make sure that it survived all of their durability testing uh, with that same diameter tire. So that I found very interesting. Um, it was also cool just to hear the engineers awareness for wanting to make a great off-road vehicle. It was finally their chance to, to Roman's point for many years, Land Rover has been making vehicles that are SUVs and designed for a broad range of consumer interests. And, and, and certainly favoring the luxury side of the market for them, for those engineers to be able to play with the new Defender and make it take a 35 inch tire, install a rear locking differential, long travel, cross-linked independent suspension. That's all very cool stuff for them. So they made it suitable for off-road travel. You know, it's funny when I was in LA looking at it, um, and, and you, this is the case for all the European off-roaders, right? I mean, tires are probably the most important thing to make a vehicle off-road worthy, right? It's where it hits the ground. It's where you get most of your traction, your durability, your um, protection. Uh, so and, and the Europeans, be it Audi with their all-roader or even Land Rover, when they go off-road tires, they go with Scorpions, right? Which in my mind are kind of like, um, at least coming from like a Moab perspective, right? Or an America off-road Western perspective. A, a Scorpion's kind of like, uh, let's say let's say a KO3 is, is, a, is like a Carhartt work glove, right? A Scorpion would be like a gentleman's <laughs> glove that you would put on when going out for dinner. Not that they're bad off-road tires, but they're certainly not the kind of thing we look at when we're rock crawling. And so so I always find it funny that, that, that the Europeans go with what they consider a very off-road tire, and I consider a very mild kind of all-season tire. And the manufacturers in Europe are so constrained by fuel economy and emissions that they have to put these very road biased, very low rolling resistance tires, even on a proper four wheel drive. Yeah, yeah. And the other, we're talking about design. The other thing, and I don't know if this bothers you or not, but you know, I spend a lot of time on Craigslist looking at old cars, and my favorites are like old off roaders, right? And and. Whenever I see a Jeep, whenever I see a Jeep and it's got diamond plate, it inevitably, inevitably means that the thing is rusted to hell, right? Because that's the easiest fix. Just 
they slapped some diamond plate on it. And then Land Rover did this funny thing where they have this tradition of diamond plate, but instead of using real diamond plate, which let's face it is pretty cheap metal, right? It's, it's like, it's not the titanium of the, of the, of the metal world. They went with plastic for some reason, right? And, and that's the one part that I was like, Ugh, just if you're going to go diamond plate, just go with the real stuff. Does, does that bother you or is it just me? Well, it does. And I, I mentioned that in the podcast with Matt Scott as well. Is And by that, the way, do, do a shout out to your podcast. I was listening to it. It's great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's the Overland Journal podcast. Matt Scott is my host and he writes for Outside Magazine and others. And we talk about all things Overlandy. So, but the, uh, the tread plate, I believe, is a challenge. And it is definitely a challenge for me. I don't like anything that's faux, right? Yeah. So if it's either don't do it at all or do it in, in the most honest and authentic way possible. And where it's at on the hood, for somebody who doesn't know, that's going to tell them that it's okay to stand there. Yeah, you don't want to stand on and that. And I think that's, that's the mistake is that you put tread plate on places that people stand. So in that particular case, the designer that put that there lacked the experience to know that that was not an appropriate use of diamond plate. So um, I think that they, what, if I got that vehicle and I was gonna modify one, I would just wanna find a color matched panel that I could put in there and then it would fix the problem in my mind. Uh, that, that, that doesn't overly concern me visually. It's more the fact that I don't like things that are fake um, and, and, I, and it says the wrong message to the person buying it. Tread plate means stand here. So. Yeah, yeah, and the, other, the, the you know the, the great thing I think the Defender and Land Rover have done right is the way they're marketing it. So if you go to their website uh, and you pick uh, the Defender, there's like three different paths you can go down, right? There's kind of the urban path, there's kind of the you know the the country path, and then there's the off-road path, and you can customize it. And I, and I think Jeep has a lot to learn because Jeep has kind of left a lot of money on the table uh, in terms of the over uh, aftermarket, right? A lot of people out there who um, who customize their Jeeps, but don't do it through Jeep. But, but Land Rover has actually gone out and figured out how to do it. Uh, and that's really cool. Let me turn this back on. Now, Scott, there's going to be um, in the US here, two different engines available. So there's a four cylinder and the six. Uh, have you driven both? What do you think of the powertrain? So the in Namibia, the vehicles that we had available was a diesel and then the larger straight six configuration that we're going to get from North America. Um, the, this is one consideration for your listeners on the difference between the four cylinder and the six cylinder. The four cylinder is considerably less expensive, but more importantly, it allows for the fitment of an 18 inch diameter wheel. So this is the thing that a lot of people won't realize is that they'll want to buy the six cylinder because of the, the, the displacement and the power numbers, but you won't be able to fit an 18 inch wheel, at least not according to the factory specifications. I'm sure someone in the aftermarket will resolve that. And that's because they went with a larger brake package oh. for the six cylinder. Um, the six cylinder drives great. I mean, it's, it's over 400 horsepower or very close to it. And it, it uh, drives very well. It's fast, very capable, excellent in the sand. Um, if I was gonna spec out a Defender personally, I would just go with the four cylinder and get the 18 inch steel factory wheels. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree. Those steelies look incredible on the vehicle. Um, let's talk about the questions that people may have at home. First, um, 
the defender was supposed to be at the dealerships now. Uh, it isn't because of what's happening in the world, obviously. So I don't know when it's going to be available, right? I don't know. I, I think they're starting production again, but they did stop production in the UK. Do you know any? Do you know any inside information as to when it's going to hit the dealerships? I do. I actually talked with the Land Rover uh, product family lead, Simon, yesterday, and uh, it was we he, we actually had him on our podcast related to the Range Rover, but. We uh, we talked to him about that, about when the Defender is going to be available, and he could not give us an exact date because I think that they don't know an exact date, but there are cars that are getting on the water very soon, like like contemporary to the time that we're recording this. So I would suspect that we're start going to start to see early deliveries um, by late June. So. Yeah. And then for all of you guys out there who are interested in buying one, uh, there's a two door and a four door, right? The 110 and the 90. Is that right? Am I doing that right, Tommy? Yeah, they call one? it that, although the wheel the wheelbase doesn't translate. <laughs> but but the first ones are, of course, going to be the more expensive ones, right? So uh, the, the thing starts at, what does it start at, Tommy? I'm going to say like 50s. Nine, yeah. Yeah, like nine grand. Yeah. Yeah, just just under. But I'm sure that the first ones are not going to be the the steel wheel. You know, they're going to be the expensive launch editions, and I'm looking. I, I would I would bet it's going to be north of sixty, maybe seventy thousand dollars if you want one. It. I think they were edition. around seventy grand for the first edition cars. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're not they're not going to be inexpensive. Uh, now, how about the interior? I, you know, I got to sit in it at, in L.A. What do you think of the interior? Do you like it? That's the high point. Um, the interior in my mind is the best interior of an off-road vehicle currently sold today. And there's no, for me, it's by a wide margin. And, and I don't want it, your listener to think it's just because of the visuals. It's very practical. You can configure it with three seats in the front. When, when was the last time we could put three seats in the front of a car? Uh, and I don't know if anybody will use it. I just think it's cool that it's an option. You can also delete the center seat. So you get this pass through, or you can put a small fridge there between the seats. You can configure it the way that you want. And then they've also got a, a full center console, which I like the least. Um, then they've got this um, magnesium chassis that forms the entire structure of the dash. And uh, it's exposed across and there's these little cubbies, just like in the Defender that I have. And so you can stick your GPS up there and and your, your uh, ham radio and your maps. And it, it actually is very functional and, and practical. And the seats are quite good too. And the, the A pillars are a little more thin, which I appreciate. And the glass is, is um, clear and there's a lot of glass you can see outside of the vehicle. Um, the HVAC works great. Uh, overall, the interior is a high point. Did, did, did you have any issues on the drive? Sometimes we have issues on these. You've been into enough of them. Did anything uh, ha unexpected happen? You, you know, we had, we had one minor issue that was related to, um, we were doing so much water and mud that just one of the, um, one of the parking brakes got, um, you know, gummed up or we just had to cycle it a couple times and then it, it came off, but that was it. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I like about it, and maybe you do too, Tommy, are those little side lights, right? The the, the traditional lights. I don't know what they call them, but they're the they're the yeah, little the Alpine windows. Yeah, the yeah, little windows. The Alpine windows. Yeah. yeah, those are really cool. It doesn't have stadium seating. I think it does, right? So it's the traditional yeah. kind of second row is higher, so you can actually see over the people in the first row. It absolutely does, and uh, the back seats are great too. The interior is. I have very little criticism for the interior. It's it's really quite good. 
Now in LA, yeah. they would they wouldn't let us crawl on top of the roof because they had the ladder. Did you get to go on top of the roof? Does it support you? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I weigh about two hundred and twenty pounds. You can see it. It flexes a little bit, but it it uh, it absolutely worked. We were climbing up and down, grabbing off tires. Um, I didn't have any punctures on the trip, but uh, a co-driver of mine did have a, a a puncture. It was maybe a slow leak, and then there was a couple other punctures. Um, that's one of the challenges with modern vehicles is that these these wheels are too big and the tires are too are too soft. So you end up with a lot of punctures. That I didn't see any punctures with the 18-inch wheel cars, but the 19-inch wheel cars um, again the sidewall is so short. Um, and they weren't an LT construction tire either, so you're talking two-ply. Now, Scott, tell us a little bit about kind of the um, itinerary of your trip and the different terrain you were driving over, maybe how the, the vehicle performed in the different, different kind of elements. Well, the one thing that was very cool is that there was uh, less than 10 kilometers of pavement total. Wow. Which is, like, car companies just don't do that anymore. I mean, Jeep has been pretty aggressive with some launches, but... Um, for Land Rover to just throw media literally into the back of beyond. I mean, we were in one of the most rem remote areas of Namibia. And I mean, we were so remote. I mean, people think that we were staying in fancy hotels and stuff. We were camping in tents. I mean, this, this uh, was a proper adventure. And, uh, and the tents weren't big, fancy safari tents. They were actual tents. Uh, you know, canvas walled, small camping tents that you would haul in a vehicle because they had to, they had to haul all of the gear out there. Um, and it started off with a, a route called Van Zell's Pass, which is quite famous in the Overland community as being a very challenging route. And it's, it's very rocky, uh, loose rock plus large embedded rock and ledges, um, very shaly and sharp rock as well. Um, a lot of exposure as a shelf road. Um, so we were dealing with uh, loose climbs, which showed off the capability with the rear locking differential. The tires were run um, essentially at street pressure at the lower end of the pressure range, uh, but where it wouldn't trip the tire pressure monitoring system. So that was another thing I like, I would have aired down more um, and the vehicle did very well at the pressures we were at. Um, and then we had a series of very steep and very like high risk, descents, um, which it makes sense that they would do that. A lot of media just simply don't have off-road experience. So um, going up it would have been what I would have preferred to have done. That would have really tested the vehicle. But uh, the vast majority of, of automotive journalists that we experience in the field, um, don't, they lack the confidence to do that kind of a, of a, of a dangerous um, climb. But the vehicle, as I understand, did that climb as well. They, some of the Land Rover um, driving instructors also did the climb, so the vehicle achieved that as well. But beautiful area, gorgeous. Now, of really course, cool. Land Rover was, I think, the first company to come out with a uh, terrain management system way back, you know, under, what was that? What, what was a Disco 2, Tommy, right? That had the first terrain that, management? That would have been the, the Range Rover in like 0203. The L322 yeah. was the first. Yeah, and, and what I'm diesel. talking about is basically you select with a knob or a lever what kind of terrain you're in and then the computer uh, adjusts uh, using the ABS system where it sends power and where it breaks the different wheels. And over the years, at least I've been following them, they've gotten kind of away from that to just having the vehicle figure it out automatically, right? So you, today you just put it in auto 
on most Land Rovers, Range Rovers, and it kind of figures out whether you're in snow or you're in sand. Um, so tell me about the terrain management in the Defender. I, I, I've been reading it's the latest generation. How does that work, and uh, did it, did, does it work? Well, there's the thing I would want to talk about first is the manual configurator. So we, we're, you and I are used to enjoying an, a more analog experience, and you can actually achieve as close to analog as possible in a digital vehicle. So you can go into the screens, and you can lock the rear differential. You can change the traction control to being higher intervention or lower intervention. You can even, you can even change the weighting on the steering wheel um, and, all, and the throttle response. All of that can be manually configured, which I did which I did and I really enjoyed. Um, the Most traction controls, even the ones that are automatic, they get it wrong the majority of the time. And that's because the vehicle can't, that doesn't know what conditions that you're in. So it can, the delay can be too significant. So I actually like the fact that most traction controls in proper off-road vehicles can be driver selectable. Uh, so that way, if you're in sand, you have very low traction control intervention, which allows maximum wheel spin. Same thing with mud. Whereas in rock, you want minimum amount of wheel spin, so maximum traction control intervention. So I do like the fact that on the on the Defender, you can adjust it from each terrain mode and then get, I think, a very effective response. But what I like best is that I could go in there and configure it myself. Yeah, what was the best setting? Where did you put it? Like, where did you, where did you have it most of the time? So what I liked was uh, the steering at the heaviest weight. Um, the steering was something that I liked the least about the driver experience because it was so digital and vague. You didn't get a lot of feedback, which that has an upside, though. It, it reduces driver fatigue because you're not getting that constant uh, steering input. Uh, but I didn't like the fact that I wasn't getting as much feedback from the terrain. So I would have a heaviest steering setting. I would have the lightest throttle response. So that way the vehicle was less likely to lurch and then and favor a lot of left foot braking. Um, and then I did maximum traction control intervention because we were mostly on rock. Um, so that was the, and then the shift, the shift points I also had um, as being relatively soft because I didn't want to get that shift shock as we were climbing. Do you know what the axle ratio was? What was your like crawl ratio when you had it in low range? Um, I did figure that out in uh, for one of our articles, and it, it is very low. Um, more, it's lower than you need it to be. Okay. Um, in most in most situations, so it's not Jeep Rubicon low, but in a lot of cases, Jeep Rubicon low is actually a downside, especially in reverse, because you only have one gear in reverse. So if you're trying to reverse out of mud or out of sand, oftentimes the wheel spin is too low. Hmm. And how about? Uh... Uh, traction control, did that kick in or can you defeat that completely? Uh, you, vehicle stability control? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, you can defeat it for the most part. Um, it does not allow you to go you completely go like sideways, <laughs> drifted around a, a well, sandy corner. It, it allowed for a lot of that. Okay. So it, the vehicle really favored, it was, these vehicles are getting so smart that it knows when the driver is initiating certain things. So if the driver was to go heavy throttle, um, it allowed more yaw. Um, if, if the driver did uh, a lot of like heavy braking, so trail braking into a corner, the vehicle just would perfectly start to drift out. And I didn't get a lot of, a lot of intervention. Um, it was very subtle. Now, if you left the systems um, in their factory configuration, if you didn't defeat some of them, 
uh, then it was it was definitely like, no, you can't play today. But if you turned uh, stability control off, I think it was it was really good. It was really great. So and we've been getting a lot of um, comments and emails asking us, you know, does it feel different than a discovery? So you know, the discovery is also a unibody with their suspension and four wheel um, independent suspension. Does it feel different enough to differentiate it from like the discovery five? It to me, it feels uh, so different. Uh, really? the, the the whole driver experience is different. Uh, the angles are so different and the, the tires are much larger diameter as well. So all of the inputs are softened because of the diameter of the tires. Uh, the suspension is also tuned for off-road. So um, a sport has stiffer sway bars and it has a lower overall ride height. So it, it handles better on the road, but it is a lot more head toss off-road. So they feel, they feel very different. I mean, <laughs> If this vehicle kind of looks to me like if the LR4 had gone to the next stage, it would have been, you know, the LR5. This would have been that evolution of the car from an off-road perspective. So it feels like an LR4, but with better traction control systems and a better suspension as well. Now you said you said that you had to get the tires from the roof. Where is the spare tire? Isn't it mounted on the back, or is it? Is it? I mean, this one right there has it. Has it? on the roof is that where it normally lives or is where does it live uh every vehicle had two spares because of the, okay. the likelihood of a puncture there's one on the rear door which is yep. so cool that it's on the rear door yeah um, and then there's one on the roof we just use the one on the roof typically because of ease of access so. okay and then you know we don't care about this because we live in high desert but our friends in australia do how's water water fording on them i saw you went over you know through a lot of bogs you went through a lot of deep rivers it looked pretty cool yeah, it, it has, it's very well sealed. And then it has a factory raised air intake, which they, they're very clear that it's not a snorkel yeah. because they don't want <laughs> they they snor people thinking, <laughs> but um, we had water uh, like up to the hood. I mean, it was very, very deep, very, very deep. And uh, the vehicle performed well. It, it has a, a 35 or a 36 inch waiting depth. So. That's pretty good. And how about, I know you were off-road, but uh, did you get any fuel economy numbers, uh, maybe from the computer in the vehicle? Well, it, you know, it was, the fuel economy was poor because we were, yeah, we were, I figured. I mean, we, we were, if it was smooth, we were rally driving. If, if it was technical, <laughs> you know, you, you, yeah, I mean, we were, I, I think that it was all in liters per 100K, but I think we were 17, 18 liters per 100K, yeah. pushing 20 at times, so. So, so pretty thirsty. Like, uh, and what size is the fuel tank? Do you know, how big is the fuel that tank? I don't recall. But the range, the range wasn't bad with the with the six cylinder. If you if you don't boot it all the time, it gets pretty good gas mileage. Do you wish we got the diesel in the U.S.? Was that a a nice thing to have off road or anything you preferred? I I liked it off road um, at slow speeds. Anything above slow speeds, the six cylinder was superior obviously from a performance perspective when we got into the sand dunes it was superior from a performance perspective it's the right motor for north america um I, obviously i'm a huge fan of diesel motors having used them around the world but the thing that's changed for all of us is now they have uh particulate filters they have uh, urea injection and they require ultra low sulfur diesel so if you're in the middle of uh, the congo you're not going to find ultra low sulfur diesel. So that, that diesel motor that we think we want is actually not the right 
engine for even going around the world. So at the moment, until the rest of the world catches up with ultra low sulfur diesel, we're better off with a gas motor. All right, in, in the last few minutes that we have, spec your, your Defender, how would you get it? And, and including well, color. Well, I, I have done that a few times in the, in the builder and, and it's pretty interesting to see what's available when you get into it. I would first of all pick the four cylinder and the reason for that is to gain the 18 inch steel wheels, factory steel wheels. I would get the base model um, with, with the third, you know, the, the three seats across the front. Yeah, like a pickup. I would, yep, I would spec the, and I would get a 110. I would, I would spec the raised air intake. And then you can, you can also get an off-road package that gives you the rear locking differential. And that's all I would put on it. That's it. How about color? What color? White. All right. Yeah, yeah. why not? Your uh, old G-Wagon was white. Is, are you a fan of white or is that just because it's, it's, a, like, it's like the U-Wagon color? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a practical color for the dirt, right? So, so and, and you get one. You want one. I mean, after driving, yeah. you want one bad enough. To, and you've got the funds. You can go get one of these things. Would you spend your own money on it? You know, I've, I've definitely considered it. I... Um, I think, I mean, I, I still have the G-Wagon. I have a classic Defender. I've been working on uh, Lexus GX and uh, been building that up. I think for the moment, I would probably wait a little bit. I mean, that's, the, that's always something to consider with Land Rover. We have to know what the reliability numbers and stuff start to come in at. So I would probably wait a little bit. Um, however, I do have an opportunity coming up to drive the car again just by myself they're gonna let me take a vehicle and compare it with my classic defender so well, we're gonna do a little bit of a comparison between the old and the new where i can actually put the same vehicle same obstacle and then i think i'll have a better sense after that yeah, that's cool that's really cool now do you think it's worthy of the defender name that's always a big question online is it is it worthy of those letters on the front you know, for me, I would say it, it is, uh, it's the modern Defender that they needed to make. It, it oftentimes as car enthusiasts, we, we want vehicles that manufacturers can't make money with. And I don't think that that's fair. Um, you know, I think if you want something that is purely for off-road, you want to get a Wrangler. If you want something that you could drive around the world, I think that it is, this new Defender works for that. Um, yeah, I think that that's, it's too early to tell. Let's see how it does. If it, if it, if the NGOs start using it, if you see the Red Cross using them in Africa and and they're holding up and they're proving to be durable and reliable, then it will be worthy of the Defender name. If Land Rover has built a quality product, it will be the next Defender for sure. Yeah, and you know, I mean, with everything that's happening in the world right now, we live in uncertain times, uh, and so yeah, we'll we'll see. You know, I mean, even getting into this country, I think is proving to be a challenge. And then I think people right now are a little worried to spend big bucks on new vehicles just because you don't know what's around the corner. Um, so I, I kind of feel bad for them because uh, they picked a really difficult time to launch it. Uh, and then, you know, in the back of my mind, if I'm thinking about buying one, you know, there's a B word, right? The Bronco, which is coming. Um, and um, it's going to be less expensive. And it's going to be more of a, I think, Wrangler competitor, but certainly it will be cross-shopped uh, with the Defender. I think that, you know, the, the people who love off-roaders, those are the three that I think will resonate with them. 
And we have to remember that when the Defender program started, when the new Defender program started, Land Rover was still owned by Ford. Yeah. So Ford Ford has already had a lot of insights into what this car was going to be. Yeah. So I think that you're going to see a lot of similarities actually between the Bronco and the Defender. So Bronco, Wrangler, and of course now Defender. As you can tell, we're big fans of Land Rover here at TFL. And we can't wait to get our hands on the new Defender and of course the new Bronco. Thank you guys for spending this, well, almost hour with us talking all things Defender. And of course, as soon as we can get our hands on one, we will put it through our usual series of tests, including towing with it because we didn't talk about that. As always, this is Roman reporting for the Fastlane Car. Remember, check out tflcar.com for more news views and of course, real world reviews. And thanks for listening and thanks for watching. Ciao. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.